0: We're going to read the Bible now together, so if you have a Bible, you picked one up as you came in, please open up to Judges chapter 4, and then read the first nine verses. If you don't have one, it's fine, the passage will be on the screen so you can follow along as well. So Judges chapter 4. Again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord, now that Ehud was dead. So the Lord sold them into the hands of Jabin, king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazor. Caesarea, the commander of his army, was based in Harasheth Hagoyim. Because he had uh, 900 chariots fitted with iron and had cruelly oppressed the Israelites for 20 years, they cried out to the Lord for help. Now Deborah, a prophet, the wife of Lapidoth was leading Israel at the time. She held court under the palm of Deborah between Remah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim. And the Israelites went up to her to have their disputes decided. She sent for Barak, son of Abinam, from Kadesh in Naphtali, he s- and said to him, The Lord, the God of Israel, commands you, go. Take with you ten thousand men from Naphtali and Zebulun and lead them up to Mount Tabor. I will lead Sezerah, the commander of Jabed's army, with his chariots and his troops to the Kishon River and give him into your hands. Barak said to her, If, on, if you only go with me, I will go. But if you don't go with me, I won't go. Certainly. I'll go with you, said Deborah, but because of the course you are taking, the honour will not be yours, for the Lord will deliver Caesarea into the hands of a woman.
1: Good morning Southside, my name's Sam and it's my great privilege to open uh, and unpack this part of God's Word with you. It's a crazy story that we, we are faced with this morning, it's a fantastic story. It's going to be a good time, I think. Um, how about I pray for us as we get started this morning and ask that God would be with us to help us unpack this crazy story. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, uh, we thank you so much for this, this immense privilege to hear you speak to us through your word. Thank you for, for your word that has been written down for us that we might draw nearer to you. Father, we pray that this morning we would do just that. We would draw near to you and we would be reminded of the hope that we have in in you in the Lord Jesus and what he has done for us. I pray that you'd be with us this morning, uh, help us understand uh, this part of your scripture. I pray that you'd be with me as, as I unpack this, uh, help me to be faithful to your word and I pray this Father in Jesus name, for his glory. Amen. The other day, uh, I was I'm driving into the city with with Lauren and the kids and and on our way in, we see one of these giant finches perched on the side of the Goodwill Bridge. And apparently, there's, there's six of these giant finches, all wearing party hats, by the way, throughout the city. Uh, I've, uh, if you've been in the city the last few weeks, you've probably seen them. But have you got any idea why they're there? Well, it turns out that these sculptures were put up in September for Brisbane Fest. And they're called messengers of hope. See, they're supposed to be an image of hope. When you look up and see these birds it's ridiculous. When you look up and see these birds, they're supposed to give you a message of hope. Their vibrant colors, their party hats, they're meant to make you smile, make you feel hopeful during the festival. But more than that, hopeful during coronavirus, the pandemic. And as I'm looking up at these, these giant birds, I'm thinking, that, that's really nice. It's really good to give people hope during this situation. And we can all do with, with a moment to smile, can't we? But really, at the end of the day, well, they're just giant birds in party hats, aren't they? They can't actually give us true hope. Yeah, they can help us to smile again, but, but they can't get rid of our biggest problem. Six giant birds in party hats aren't going to save us from coronavirus. They can't rescue us from our suffering, or from evil, or from death. Now, I doubt that the artist who, who made these birds actually thinks that they can save us from our situation, but I, but I wonder if there is a better image of hope that we can put before people. Something bigger that we can point them to than six giant birds. Well, what do you reckon? If you were asked to give people an image of hope for our current situation, what would you put before people? What would you give them? I think this is a helpful question because it gets to the heart of what you put your hope in. It makes you think, well, what gives me hope and and how can I share that hope with others? Where's your hope in this situation? What are you looking to? What are you clinging on to to get you through this situation, this pandemic? To get you through this life? Well, in our passage today, in in Judges chapter 4, ancient Israel find themselves in a situation no one wants to be in. See, their whole nation is being severely oppressed by another more powerful nation, the cruel Canaanites. And we're told that this has been going on like this for 20 years. Israel's desperately looking for hope, something that they can cling to that'll get them through their situation. They're crying out to God because they know that, that they can't save themselves. They can't rescue themselves from the cruel Canaanites or from the cruel Canaanite leader... Sazerah the soldier and his 900 iron chariots. So, so now we see that God is in this situation where he's being asked to give his people, the Israelites, an image of hope. So what's he going to give them? Well, what would you do if you're in God's situation? Remember that God's omnipotent, He's, he's all-powerful, so He can do anything at this point. So maybe if you were God, you, you'd simply just obliterate the entire Canaanite army. Or maybe you'd, you'd turn their iron chariots into pumpkins. Or maybe you'd go the other way. And we're told in verse 1 that it's, the Israelites are doing evil in the eyes of God. Maybe you'd just get rid of all the Israelites, problem solved. Solve a lot of problems, wouldn't it? well, well, God doesn't do any of that. When Israel cries for help, He gives them an image of hope, but not, not in the way that we'd expect Him to. In fact, His response comes completely unexpected. As we look at this story today, we see that it's a story full of the unexpected. This story's got so many twists and turns, and it's dripping with, with irony and, and humor, and it It doesn't shy away from blood and gore. See, this story actually reads more like a Quentin Tarantino film than it does a story from the Bible. Now, I know that Quentin Quentin Tarantino isn't everybody's cup of tea, but one thing I love about his movies is, is just how well he puts comedy and violence together. He's a clever storyteller. And the author of The Judges is the same. And we don't have to wait very long before we start to see the irony and the humour emerge in the story. Because just after uh, Israel cry out to God, looking for some kind of hope that they can cling to, as Sezeria the soldier keeps pushing against them, God answers their cry by giving Israel a pretty hopeless image of hope. He gives them a woman. Now, one thing... We have to understand is that women in this ancient culture, they aren't heroes. So if you're thinking that she's some kind of wonder woman, think again, because women in this culture don't lead armies. They don't fight battles. So for God to give Israel a woman at this point, well, it's a pretty hopeless image of hope. Nevertheless, this is who God has chosen to give Israel. And, and from verse 4, we're told that her name is Deborah. And she appears to have, to have earned some respect among her people because she's, she's the one that they've been coming to when they want their disputes sorted out. So there is some credit to her. She is credible. I mean, she's even had a palm tree named after her. Which, by the, by the way, it, the meaning of her name, of Deborah, which is significant in Hebrew culture is bee, like a honeybee. Bee. Can you see the irony going on here? God's answer to Israel's cry for help is He gives them a bee under a tree. She might be credible, but she's not incredible. It's a hopeless image of hope for the Israelites. And it comes completely unexpected. Because how's one little bee under a tree meant to save Israel from an entire army fitted with iron chariots? See, it's funny, but it's pretty depressing, isn't it? Is God as mighty as we think He is? Well, let's keep reading. And let's see how God might use this little lady bee Because something surprising we learn about Deborah is she's a prophetess. In other words, God has chosen this little lady bee to represent His personal presence before His people. And again, it comes completely unexpected. This bee is going to be the one that God speaks through to bring about His salvation for Israel. And again, He he speaks through this bee in unexpected ways, which we see from verse 6. See, Deborah the bee sends for this guy named Barak and says to him, God commands you to go and take 10,000 men and lead them up the mountain. God's going to lead Sezeria the soldier with his 900 iron chariots and his troops to the river, and God's going to give Sezeria the soldier into your hands. She's saying this to Barak. Wow. So, so maybe, maybe this bee under the tree, well, maybe she wasn't God's image of hope for Israel. Maybe, maybe Barak is going to be the image of hope. And Barak's name, by the way, it means lightning. What a powerful name. Sounds like this lightning bloke's going to be the man. So how does lightning respond to his calling? Well, we're told in verse 8, Lightning says to little lady bee, if you go with me, I'll go but if you don't go with me, I won't go. Oh. Well, maybe this lightning bloke's not as manly as we thought. He, he won't go fight Cesare the soldier unless Little Lady B is holding his hand. What an embarrassing response for someone with a name like Lightning. So how does Little Lady B respond to, to Barak at this point? Well, she says in verse verse 9... Yeah, I'll go with you. But because of the course you're taking, the honour won't be yours. For the Lord will deliver Sezira the soldier into the hands of a woman. How embarrassing. All of Israel's probably standing around at this point listening, by the way, eavesdropping on what's going on. And you can just see their reaction, can't you? The the leader they call lightning has has just been told that his honour's going to be taken by a woman. It's a deeply embarrassing moment for lightning. The bee has left her sting. And it's yet another hopeless image of hope. But were you listening to the words that God spoke through his little bee? Because God's just revealed where we need to look to find the image of hope for Israel. Israel's image of hope are the hands of a woman. God's going to use a woman to save his people. Totally unexpected, right? And so our little lady bee, Deborah, well, she's back in our sights. We'll want to keep our eyes on her for the rest of the story to see how God might use her to rescue Israel. From verse 9, the the bee goes with lightning as he gathers 10,000 troops, and our eyes are still on her. But then, in verse 11, we get this really random bit in the story. Some random guy with a tent who's a descendant of Moses' brother-in-law. I mean, like, we we see the name Moses and and we're like, cool, this guy must be important. But really, he's just a very, very distant relative. It's like when someone tries to tell you that they're related to someone famous, but when you actually ask them about it, it turns out their mum's, cousin's fiancé went to school with Russell Crowe's sister and you're just like hmm, cool story bro <laughs> well, that, that's the impression we get of this guy here he's a nobody who just puts up a tent near some tree this guy's got nothing to do with the story as far as we know he's not part of Lightning's army and he's not part of Cesira the soldier's army so why is he here? Well, we're not told yet. We'll just have to wait and see. The next thing we are told, though, is that Caesarea the soldier, he hears that this lightning bloke's heading up the mountain. So he summons all his men, gets his 900 iron chariots, and he's ready to fight against lightning at the river. Now, this is really cool, because we're seeing what God spoke through the little lady B back in verses 6 and 7, is beginning to be fulfilled. lightning. Lady B and the Israelite army are on top of the mountain. And Sazerah the soldier and his cruel Canaanites with their 900 iron chariots are down below. And the battle begins. The little lady B says to the lightning bolt in verse 14, Go! This is the day the Lord has given Sazerah the soldier into your hands. Has not the Lord gone ahead of you? So the lightning strikes from above and his army of thousands thunders down the mountain. The cruel Canaanite chariots conduct his charge and lightning destroys them all in a flash. The cruel Canaanites are killed and not a man is left alive. Ah, except that we're told that sneaky Cezira the soldier slips away. And this is where things start to feel a bit strange, if they haven't felt strange already. Because I thought that God said that Caesarea the soldier would be delivered into the hands of a woman. We're told in verse 14 that it's only the lightning bolt and his men who go down to fight. It appears that Deborah, the little bee, stays on the mountain. Would, would Caesarea the soldier have gotten away if she'd been there in the battle? It's great that the the cruel Canaanites have been defeated, but Sezeria the soldier is still at large. He still poses a threat. And as a result, God's word hasn't been fully fulfilled. It feels strange. Something's gone wrong. Or has it? So the author now shifts the story. The focus is no longer on lightning and the bee. Instead, we're going to follow Caesarea the soldier. In verse 17, we read that Caesarea the soldier, meanwhile, fled on foot to the tent of Jael, the wife of Heba. Okay, so that claim to fame tent guy, random dude, well, maybe he wasn't so random after all. Because now his wife's in the story. And she's even more of a nobody than he was. And get this, her name, her name means mountain goat mountain goat i mean is is there a creature more isolated more unknown or more random than a mountain goat but let's keep reading verse 18 jl aka mountain goat she goes out to meet Caesar the soldier and says to him come my lord come right in don't be afraid so he enters her tent and she covers him with a blanket i'm thirsty he says please give me some water so Mountain Goat opens a skin of milk and gives Sazira the soldier a drink and covers him up. So this, this Mountain Goat, this, this nobody woman, gives Sazira the soldier a place of refuge. But more than that, she gives him some warm milk and covers him up with a blanket. <laughs> this Sazira bloke, this soldier, isn't looking so tough anymore, is he? Not only has he run away scared from a fight, but, but like a little boy running to his mummy, he goes and hides in a tent where he's given a cup of warm milk and a blankie. It's humiliating. See, the, the guy who's been oppressing Israel for 20 years is acting like a toddler. He's a mummy's boy who never grew up. Hiding in a tent, under a blanket, completely tuckered out, and he's trusting in this woman who looks like his mum to protect him. He says to the woman, the mountain goat, in verse 20, as he's hiding under his blanket, stand in the doorway of the tent. If someone comes by and asks you, is anyone here, say no. He's gone from being Cezira the soldier to being Cezira the sook. And he's really trusting that this mountain goat will keep him safe. And there's not really any reason why, why he shouldn't. There's no reason why Cezira the, the sook shouldn't trust the mountain goat. She's offered him a tent to hide in. She's given him a warm blanket. And when he asked for water, she gave him milk. She sounds pretty trustworthy, right? Right? Well, before you put all your trust in her, there's a fun fact that you might want to know about Israeli mountain goats, which I learned from watching David Attenborough, by the way, so it's totally legit. See, aside from being incredibly sure-footed, When any kind of trouble comes wandering into their camp, the Israeli mountain goat will always seek higher ground to gain the best advantage over the intruder. And we're told here in verses 21 and 22 that our mountain goat has got Sazira the Sook curled up at her feet. She's got the higher ground. So what's her next move? Well, mountain goat picks up a hammer and a tent peg, walks slowly over to where Caesarea the sook is sleeping, she plants her feet firmly on the ground above him and then hammers that peg through his temple and out the other side and into the ground. And just at that moment, old mate Lightning comes along looking for Caesarea, only to find that the nobody mountain goats got him pegged to the floor of her tent, dead. What the heck just happened? <laughs> Here we were expecting God to rescue Israel through, through his little bee prophetess or, or through his lightning leader, but instead God's delivered Israel's enemy into the hands of the woman Jael, the nobody mountain goat. It's completely unexpected. She's the most unlikely character in the story. You don't see it coming. Even when you're told that the enemy will be delivered into the hands of the woman Even when you're told how it's going to end, we're surprised by how God uses this nobody woman. She's the unlikely hero. I could totally see Quentin Tarantino turning this into a movie. It's got the twists and the turns. It's dripping with irony and humor, and it's got the blood and the gore. But before you run out of here and go and build sculptures of bees, lightning bolts, mountain goats, and tent pegs, as messages of hope for people you might want to see how this story actually ends for Israel because when you get to the end of this crazy story and you get to Judges 6 you see that these things don't actually provide any lasting hope for Israel because the thing about bees is after they leave their sting they die and lightning well it only strikes once there's no lasting hope for Israel in these things. They're just hopeless images of hope. Like finches, they're just a temporary fix, a fleeting moment to smile before being reminded that the present situation hasn't gone away. Because after the characters, these characters die, Israel continues to do evil in the eyes of God and continue to find themselves in helpless situations, looking for something that they can cling to for hope. So where are we supposed to put our hope? What are we supposed to put our hope in if even the people God gives us are hopeless images of hope? Well, thousands of years after God gives Israel the bee and lightning... God decides to send one last judge, one last rescuer, one last saviour. His name is Jesus. And he's the guy that we're supposed to pin all our hopes to. And his his story, well, it starts off with a lot of promise, doesn't it? He's born the miracle child. There are angels, multitudes of angels who are singing his praises at his birth. The wise men... These wise men come and they travel for a long, from a long way away to bring him gifts fit for a king. But then this Jesus kid, well, he grows up and the world around him stops seeing him as a judge, as a rescuer, as a saviour. He doesn't fight. He doesn't lead armies. He doesn't write anything about what he does. He doesn't even get married and have kids. Why would the world want to put their hope in this guy? He's a pretty hopeless image of hope. Like Deborah, the the Lady B, this this Jesus is said to be a prophet, which means that he's God's personal presence. But unlike Lady B, who, who had some credibility among her people, this Jesus is constantly being opposed by his own people. So much so that the Israelite leaders end up having Jesus killed on a cross. See, Deborah was was the bee under the tree, a pretty ridiculous image of hope. Well, this Jesus, he becomes the naked man nailed to a tree. It's a pathetic picture of hope, isn't it? And this is the last guy God decided to send to rescue his people? And isn't that just how the world sees Jesus the people you work with people at your school your friends your relatives they all just look at Jesus as the man who who never fought never led an army never got married and who just died a sad and pathetic death on a cross Why would you want to hold Him out to people as a picture of hope? Well, because the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are dying. But to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. See, Jesus may not have been very credible in his day, but what God does through him on the cross is absolutely incredible. And it's choreographed perfectly. What everyone, including Jesus' own disciples, were expecting was that Jesus would lead an army to fight against the nations surrounding Israel. They were expecting him to be the lightning bolt who'd strike down the enemy. But what God the Father... And His Son, Jesus, had planned since the beginning of time was to send Jesus to rescue people, not from the enemy that surrounds them, but from the enemy that lives inside them. And it's not just an enemy inside Israel that existed thousands of years ago. No, it's, it's God's enemy that lives inside you today. It's that voice inside you that convinces you that God's ways are crooked and your ways are good, that you can find satisfaction in the things of this world. It's that niggling feeling you get when someone hurts you and you just want to get them back for it. It's that desire you have to lie in order to make yourself look good. It's that craving you have to make your name great even at the cost of your relationships it's an enemy that goes by many names evil wrongdoing transgression sin and it will do in you whatever it takes to convince you that god isn't good god isn't true God isn't beautiful. But we're not victims of this evil. Each of us are entirely at fault for allowing this evil to make its home in us. We're entirely guilty before God because we've sided with the enemy and invited him in. And when you go against God, the author of life, you deserve nothing better than death and so it's only when you remember where we really stand before god as his enemies as people guilty of disrespecting our creator that we can begin to understand how the cross is god's perfect message of hope because as as jesus god's son the sinless one the one in whom there is no evil As He dies on the cross, He takes our guilt on Himself, and He puts an end to it. His resurrection from the dead proves His power over evil. And then He promises that anyone, no matter how vile they might be, if they come and put their trust, their hope in Him alone, in Jesus alone, God will save them. He will do it. If your hope's in Jesus, you will be freed from evil and you will be given life forever with God. So yeah, the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are dying, but for us who are being saved, it is the power of God. In the New Testament, Jesus is referred to as living hope. Which makes sense, because if you think about it, all other hopes are dead, aren't they? Sculptures don't have any life in them. The characters in Judges all die. And the same goes for our everyday heroes. Even a COVID vaccine, which, though it might help to prolong our lives, it can't get rid of the evil that lives inside of us. But Jesus? Well, he's the author of life. He's the sustainer of life. He's the resurrected life. He alone is true, living hope. So if you want to put a picture before people in this situation, of where, of, in this situation where we find ourselves of, of true hope, then give them Jesus. Give them Jesus. Tell them of the cross and what Jesus did there. And remember, the world thinks of Jesus as a pretty pathetic person. So challenge them to really, really see why a naked man nailed to a tree is seriously the best news that God could give this world. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you so much for the good news of Jesus. Father, thank you that Jesus nailed to a tree is the best news. Thank you that in Jesus we can have sure, true and living hope. That we know that when we look to him, we trust in him, you will save us from the evil that lives within us. You will rescue us from our situation. You will draw us near to you and you will give us everlasting life with you. Thank you so much for sending Jesus. And though the world may see him as a pathetic picture of hope, I pray that you would help us to be bold in sharing Jesus, in challenging people to see the power of the cross. That it is your power to rescue people Help us to cling to him for hope in this time. We pray these things for his glory and in his name. Amen.